Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Tonight, as far as I'm concerned, we have the choices of God's men. And Piney Heights Baptist Church, friends, we're standing tonight in royalty. We have tonight, as far as I'm concerned, a man that God's raised up, and a man that I admire and I thank God for. I listen to him. I, I've listened to his tapes, cry and weep, shout and praise the Lord. Brother Roloff, it's a joy to have you at Piney Heights Baptist Church tonight. Come on. May I say in the beginning of the service tonight that it's our desire and it will be done to double completely. We have between four and 500 young people that are terminal cases. Uh, all of them have to go to the intensive care ward, and that's all we operate. We take what nobody else will take. We take what no licensed home will take. And we have between four and five hundred, and that's about the limit. And the Lord willing, and he is, we'll double this year. And we'll have, at the end of the year, either eight hundred to a thousand. You'd say, where are you going to get them? We get 50 calls a day and have. We've turned, since you saw me one year ago today, wherever we might have been in this area, We've turned over 15,000 away. There's only one place for them to go. That's back to the street, to the cemetery, or to the prison house. And so, Brother Pastor, though I did not ask you to make a pledge, I never have, never will. But when a pastor leads his people to do such a noble deed, my heart rejoices, and I'm glad to be among some of our most faithful stockholders. And we're calling the stockholders meeting tonight, and we brought a few of the dividends along with us. Roloff Enterprises operated numerous troubled teen homes as a tax-exempt religious organization. In 1996, the New York Times reported an annual intake of $2.5 million. Despite allegations of starvation, beatings, and isolating students, Roloff homes still exist across the United States. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brittany Campbell. We're going to be talking about the New Beginnings Girls Academy. Brittany, can you just introduce yourself to our audience and let them know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you said, Brittany Campbell. I was, I guess, detained. I I never have really figured out a, a good way to say that, but I was at the Rebecca Home for Girls, which changed to New Beginnings Girls Academy while I was in it. I was there for four and a half years from 
2001 to 2005. Okay. And what was kind of the, uh, what was kind of your introduction to that home? Uh, about what time period in your age range were you in when you first went? And then what was kind of the reasoning for why you ended up at the home? I pretty much just had like a really uh, tumultuous childhood, was in and out of foster cares, living with different relatives and things. My dad went to prison when I was eight years old. So just kind of like a really fractured family. And my older sister actually wound up getting legal guardianship of me when I was about 13, 14. Okay. And when that happened, it just sort of coincided with her being, I guess, like discipled by some IFB people. So that was how IFB came into my family's frame. Prior to that, we were just kind of casually, you know, casually Christian. Christmas and Easter. Yeah, just kind of uh, non-denominational, definitely not regular churchgoers or anything. And so as she was, as she was kind of changing her lifestyle to fit the IFB lifestyle and that of her new friends and, and church members, there was like mounting pressure to also convert me to all of this stuff as a, as an early teenager. So What was your kind of response when you were approached with this? Like, she's making all these big changes. She's trying to push you to make these changes. Like, what was your reaction to that pressure? Well, honestly, prior to that, just kind of as I mentioned, I had a a pretty tough home life. My sister was 10 years older than me, but she was like my best friend my whole life. And I didn't really see the changes that she was making to her lifestyle and stuff as positive at all. She wasn't even the same person like on on any level so it was difficult for me because I felt like I you know I lost my best friend and mm. just had no idea what happened to my sister and it was just it was just such a dramatic change and just just kind of unbelievable to me so I was very I was very very rebellious against it, it wasn't something that I understood at all yeah Right. Right. So was it kind of that tension between the two of you because of that, that led to her sending you or was it, was it, was there a specific incident or was it just, she, she felt like that was the only way or like a last chance to kind of, I guess, convert you to her way of thinking? Yeah, I think, I think there was a lot of pressure because of that, like our completely opposing belief systems. But uh, I also think there was a lot of pressure from her church people. At the time that I moved in with her, I attended public school and pretty much no IFB kids go to public school. It's very rare. And, and also around the same time I was, you know, hitting puberty and figuring myself out. And she had found notes from friends of mine at school and stuff like that, that she basically wound up finding out that I was queer and you know, in an angry argument, that was how I came out. So kind of because of my upbringing and stuff, I had uh, probably already pre-existing PTSD from my younger years also coming out and really not wanting anything to do with this. You know, to me, it was a really negative, really shocking religious movement that just sort of swooped up my my older yeah. sister. Obviously, at, the, at this time period, New Beginnings wasn't New Beginnings yet. It was mm-hmm. re- the Rebecca Home for Girls in Texas. Where, where were you living at the time? When I first moved in with my older sister, I had been living with my mom in western Washington in the Seattle okay. area. And my older sister lived in a really isolated area in northern Idaho. So, so yeah, when she got guardianship of me, I was I was in a small town in northern Idaho, just kind of you know, reeling at all these weird changes. Right, right. So tell me a little bit about the conversation of, hey, this is where you're headed. This is the, you know, this is what I have planned out for you, you know, and how that conversation went and, you know, how you, you know, ended up traveling out to that area. Well, there wasn't really any conversation about it. One day I came home from school and my sister and her IFB husband, they asked me if I wanted to go with them to run some errands. And I didn't know anything was amiss. So I I went along with it, got in the back of their two-door car, you know, and and they started heading for Texas. And Wow. Okay. So it's pretty much a sneak attack kind of of thing with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So how long did it take in the car before you realized like, oh, we're not just running errands? And what was your, did you start asking questions? Did you just stay quiet and see what was happening? Did you, you know, panic? Like what was the, the emotion when you realized what was going on? I pretty much completely panicked after maybe about an hour in the car. I had started asking questions about where we were going and sorry if my voice is kind of shaky. I'm like, it's still sort it's still hard for me to talk yeah, about it after fine. all this time. So, so yeah, I'd started asking questions about where we were going. Obviously we weren't running errands. We're, you know, heading off on this highway into Montana. And it was kind of strange because I, I actually got really drowsy just out of nowhere. And, and I'd had some, I'd had some food that they gave to me when I first got in the car. So I got super drowsy and fell asleep. Mm. And like right in the middle of being like really confused and questioning everything. So it was, it was strange. And, and I didn't wake up till about eight hours later. And wow. yeah, at which time they let me know that they had, they were taking me to a, this really strict girl's home in Texas and they had drugs, you know, like muscle relaxers and whatever else to just kind of zonk me out if I was going to be on the ride, which I assume is, you know, they, they drug me in the first place um, in the car. So, and they pretty much, I started, I started to to yell at them and I was honestly terrified. I wanted to be able to call my mom or any other family member, you know, because the rest of my family was not IFB. They wouldn't have been in agreement with this whole process. And, but my sister was my legal guardian now, so there was just nothing that I could do. Right. And uh, they pretty much told me that if I didn't calm down with yelling at them and demanding to talk to somebody or get out of the car, then they were going to both drug me and shackle me. And like they had from somehow they had uh, shackles in the car mm. that they uh, wow. threatened to restrain me with. So. It was intense, to say the least. Right. So about what time did you actually arrive at the home and what was kind of the process kind of entering the home, you know, meeting the staff and like that, that process? Because I can't, you know, I can't imagine those circumstances, then getting out of the car and then just being a normal like, oh, hey, I'm here kind of situation. Being a friendly time. Yeah. Well, the, I believe the car trip took about, 40 hours or so I wound up complying with taking whatever type of pills they had that that they gave to me and pretty much just was passed out the entire car ride. And we arrived in Corpus Christi, Texas and um, stopped at a rest stop just outside of, outside of town. And I was like a, a goth kid and stuff. So they, they took my, you know, crazy clothes and made me change into some more tame ones before going to the home. And, and I was just kind of shocked because I left North Idaho in the middle of January. It's snowy and frozen and we get down to Texas and it's just this completely different climate, totally different culture and whatnot. And, And when we got to the home back when this was the Rebecca home for girls, original like roll off home, the the girl's dorm was situated on like 700 acres of People's Baptist Church uh, property. And uh, it was this massive dorm that could potentially house like hundreds of girls. And so when we strolled up, you know, like drove up to it, we had to go past like a guard shack. It looked like a prison, basically. Right. I have photos too that I could give to you. About okay, that. perfect. Um, but yeah, so that was pretty alarming. It was just like we're pulling up to some, you know, south texas like institution of some kind right. uh, but yeah when when i walked inside with them the first thing that i noticed was just that you could hear like a pin drop in there there was like no sound and if there were supposed to be all of these girls there it was kind of uh it was kind of scary that it was so quiet and yeah they they took me to, into the office and kind of started the whole process of telling me how things were going to be um, right. And and what, how did they explain how things were going to be? Was it just letting you know it was strict? Did they, you know, do they give you your clear day-to-day schedule or did you feel like it was just pretty generic until you actually started the process of being there? It seemed kind of like while my sister and brother-in-law were still there, it was like a really quick, hurried, 
like, okay, we'll see you later, you know, and I'm in the office with Bill McNamara and one of his staff members. It seemed like while they, while they were still there, it was a really friendly, like, we're, we're just going to love you and take care of you and all of this stuff. And we'll fix these problems that you have or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then just like from the moment that they left, it was completely different. Like right. what they, what they did was like, they took any belongings that I had that were not approved and, you know, gave me clothes that I, I had never seen clothes like that before, except for my sister's church and stuff and, and made me shower. And then they introduced me to my buddy, which was a girl who had been there for a while. She was a trusted girl and she was supposed to follow me around and show me the ropes, I guess. So once I, once I went with my buddy and kind of parted from the staff in the office she took me into one of the rooms there and she showed me like the inside of the closet door had four pieces of paper on it that detailed what the rules were like there. And Mm -hmm. the first thing that I noticed was like at the very top and like big bold letters, it was no talking. And, and I can remember asking her about that. Like, what does that mean? And it's just very literally, you cannot speak like while you are here, you can't speak. Right. I think with a lot of the interviews about the uh, girl's home, or various uh, homes for teens. Sometimes those that gets kind of glazed over because we were so used to that. But it was, it was like what everything revolved around was like complete silence. You weren't allowed to communicate with each other. You weren't allowed to speak. Right. And, right. Yeah. Um, I, I had I had one guest. I'm trying to remember who it was. I don't. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it's one I just did or if it's one that just got released. But someone talked about that like how oh yeah it was it was with abby james i just released that interview mm-hmm. and it was yeah. with marvelous grace girls academy she <laughs> talks about being an extroverted you know i mean essentially an extroverted teenage girl that that was talkative and you know the same way i was an extroverted teenage boy like there's certain yeah. people's personality is to talk and and communicate and you know it's when you have all of those especially when you're in that time period of your life where you are developing and you are developing ideas and learning mm-hmm. like to not be able to communicate or talk is a huge like just from a developmental level like that can't be good for you, you, yeah. you even mm-hmm. even if it's not your personality like to not be able to say anything or to you know to not know who is the person i'm sharing a bunk bed with or who is you know i do want to ask a staff member what's going on or i do mm-hmm. you know and it's a, it's a big way like i i just talked with someone from agape boarding school and he says you know you're going to have fights when there's you know there's two people that can't talk can't communicate there's right. no way to you know release any of your feelings or emotions if you bump into somebody the wrong way you're going to have a fight you're mm-hmm. you're creating an environment where it's going to create nothing but negative thought, whether that's yeah. internal or if it, you know, leaks into the external. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is, it is definitely a huge deal. Yeah. And anytime that I've written about my experience there online and stuff, I've uh, kind of always come back to that. Like, I think that that was really impactful to my development. Like I still struggle, like anytime that I've had jobs and things like that, communication is like, really difficult for me you know right yeah so what did it what did a day in the life of you as a student there look like so when you when you woke up in the morning you know what was it what was the layout of the day what was the schedule generally for a day so usually waking up happened around 5 a.m pretty much every day was pretty much exactly the same there was not a lot of focus on like academics as much as you know, with their brochures and websites and whatnot, they kind of tried to advertise it as that. But most of the focus was on Bible memorization at New Beginnings and Rebecca, uh, memorizing large sections of the Bible, like so that we could just rattle stuff off for like one to two hours. And then secondly, huge emphasis on singing performances. So we just like practice singing constantly, like multiple hours you know, a week. And the reason for that was because that was sort of a big source of their income. They would tour us around to different churches um, at different points throughout the year. And then over the entire summer, kind of uh, parade us around to different churches, have us do singing performances and talk about like what bad kids we were before, you know, Rebecca or New Beginnings. And at the end, pass the offering plate and, you know, just every single day of the summer. Um, Right. And for us, it was agonizing. You know, we would we would give these 
performances and stuff. But uh, like you can even see it in the, I guess like the YouTube videos of New Beginnings, singing performances all girl leather down, and that's because that was like one of the rules. Like on these singing tours, we were super sleep deprived, like ridiculously sleep deprived, overworked. You know, sometimes physically abused during these tours and we'd have to go up there and deliver just these moving performances. We have several testimonies. I tell you, the Lord's been good to us. We thank you, Lord. Uh, thank the Lord for y'all letting us be here. And then the uh, Oneida guest house over there, what a blessing and putting all the kids up down here and feeding us. And believe me, I know what it costs to feed the bunch. I mean, I cannot believe the hamburger, 20 pounds of hamburger or, or not ounce. It used to be 30 pounds of hamburger at one meal. Uh, you know how much hamburger is? <laughs> Amen. It's high, isn't it? Yeah, we try 30 pounds, praise God. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. But, but hey, you say you complain, Brother Mac? Not at all. We got more than we need, probably. We got plenty. I tell you, the Lord's been good to us. Amen. And the Brother Dilbert's got to see the place out there, and it's just a blessing. And uh, that was a miracle how that took place. And he's just been good to us. Amen. And no complaints, but let's, uh, let's have a little bit of singing, and then we'll testify just a little bit. All right? Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. When you, when you say physically abused on these tours, do you mean like 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 spankings? Do you mean like restraints? Like what what does that entail? Honestly, I was actually speaking to uh, former New Beginnings students earlier about that because um, I noticed that one of the interviews that you did recently, I think it was actually Abby. She had mentioned like that it was mostly mental abuse and stuff, but I think that sometimes. It, like the the day-to-day life in these places you get so used to it that you don't really acknowledge that like making you stand up with your face to a wall for hours um at a time in stress positions that's physical abuse like they would do like different types of super painful exercise sessions where you know there would be girls just crying and you know fainting and but yeah, there was also corporal punishment with restraints and, and beatings. Yeah, like, right. it, I don't even want to call it spankings. That's not what happened. Right. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I watched, I watched a clip. I actually just pulled it up. I'll probably, I'll probably insert it into the, into the actual edit of the interview. But there's a, there's a video that I've used clips from before where it's presenting at church. And you can, you can just feel a lack of energy and excitement from the people that are yeah. up there. Like, it, it's, it's. I mean, it's palpable. Like there's, there's a very clear sense of like, they're tired, don't want to be there, you know, and are being forced to do this performance. Like the, even, you know, if you're watching it with no context, it would almost be funny. Like it's this very monotone reading of, you know, these verses Mm -hmm. it's, it's singing these songs with this very robotic kind of gesturing. And it's like, but then when you start thinking about these interviews or you start thinking about the stories it's not really funny. It's more sad because you're seeing people who, you know, I've had people on before you're sleeping in the auditorium of a church the night before. And then, you know, eating something from like homeless shelter, you know, donated Mm -hmm. food and you're getting up and then you're essentially raising money for, I mean, McNamara and for, you know, you're not, you're not raising Mm -hmm. money that's going to help you. You're not getting money for touring. Like you, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a really sad clip to watch. Yeah. So that was every summer. Was that just all throughout the summer you would travel? Mm-hmm. Was that across the whole US or within that circle or Um for the most part it was like the south um, like, eastern US like but the Bible Belt basically like that kind of like Texas and you yeah. know mm-hmm. venturing we out did, that one. We did kind of venture out of that somewhat like uh, I think the furthest north we ever went was like Delaware on the East Coast. Um, got it. So yeah, got we were it. all all over the place. Okay, got it. So <laughs> so you're at the uh, the Rebecca Home for Girls, and eventually that was shut down. So 
was there anything else there that you want to cover before we we move over or is that how, how, what was the time span there because i know you were in several different variations of this so what was the time span of rebecca versus the latter homes so I was there in 2001 uh, when it was still in Texas. The Rebecca home had only actually reopened in 1999 after years of being closed for abuse allegations. Hmm. So they reopened in 1999 and by 2001 were already closed down again by the states, uh, by the state. So, so you were there for about two years and then? Um, I was actually there just in 2001. So it was like- Oh, just in 2001. Okay. Nine months or so. Okay. So- so what happened when they shut down? Did you go home for a small period or was it shut down and then you just got in the van and went to um, the next spot? Well, I think what happened was, I believe that the reason that the home was closed was because of a situation that had happened with a girl. That there have been numerous articles written about where she was restrained and put in an isolation room and then kicked in the ribs, slapped in the face and, and all of these things occurred to her. I could send you a link for that article. But I believe for some reason, even after all of that, obviously these claims were substantiated. The state gave like gave the program like a certain amount of time to have everybody out and sent home by. So so I believe that that was supposed to happen by like September or so of 2001. Right. And they they told us about it in June or so of 2001 told you that you were going to be going home soon. Yeah, they pretty much, it was like an announcement. They called us all to the the living area where all of us could fit. And at the the time there were 95 to a hundred girls there. And, and basically Bill McNamara stood up and said, the home's being shut down. You guys are, most of you are going to go home. And that was pretty much all that we knew. And then over the course of the next few months, there were students who would get a visit from their parents and then just go home. So it was like that uh, number of almost 100 girls like went down to about 40 girls over the next couple of months. And okay. I was one of the lucky ones that got to, got to stay. So Right. So, so the transition out of Rebecca to Missouri, to New Beginnings in Missouri, you were, you were actually, if I understand from what we were saying earlier – it was connected to another existing girls' home. So you basically kind of just combined into two, like two homes into one for a short period. So how long were you guys there? And then what, what changes did you see in the program during that time period, if any, or did it stay pretty much the same? I would say it stayed pretty, it, it stayed pretty much the same. Maybe got even a little worse, a little tougher, but yeah. So we, we went up to this uh, small town called um, Devil's Elbow, Missouri. And at the time there was a boys home there called Thanks to Calvary. Right. And it was sort of, as I understand it, it was sort of a spinoff of Mountain Park Christian Academy for another home for teens. And, and we stayed with Thanks to Calvary, like in a kind of, kind of makeshift dorm. It was like a, like a mobile home with like no walls inside of it. Like basically just like an empty mobile home with bunk beds in it and we stayed there for probably i want to say like a couple of months (laughs) okay so very quick there relatively and so you're about what age during this time at that time i would have been about 16 okay so so around this time so you're in pretty much about a year at this point what what's your mindset at that point is it just i've accepted i'm here keep my head down don't make a stir? Was it, were you kind of bucking the system, fighting what they were saying? Was there part of you that starting to buy into what they were saying? Like, what was your mindset at that point after a year of this kind of environment? I would say that by the time that we got to Missouri, I had kind of learned like, you know, after being there for that long, like coming up on a year at that point, by that time I had kind of learned to just go along with things, I guess. Prior to that though, like leading up to I guess my will just being completely broken, I, I suppose is the best way to put it. Yeah. I had been on a punishment called red shirt, which a lot of people have talked about. And uh, basically they, they didn't allow us calendars or unsupervised use of like pen and paper. So I don't actually know to this day how long I was on red shirt, but basically from five o'clock in the morning to 
sometimes after 11 at night, I would have to stand with my nose, the tip of my nose touching a wall for I'm not even certain how many months daily. So uh, it took me a really long time to get off of that. And uh, the reason that I had been put on that punishment was just because like when I first got to the home, I really thought that I, I thought that I kind of could rebel. Like I thought that I, you you thought that was an option. Yeah. yeah, Thought that was an option. I thought maybe I could be, you know, kicked out or something. Um, But yeah, just it didn't really lead anywhere except for to, you know, red shirt. So, right. Well, I guess, I guess I this cause I've had mixed answers from people from these different homes, but obviously the, you know, the, you mentioned corporal punishment, the physical punishment, humiliation, things like that with, with McNamara or the staff, was there ever any sense of like sexual misconduct or, or like inappropriate behavior with the staff because I know that's something that circles like when I see conversation about these schools that's a topic that comes up very often and I, I've heard some people that say I never sensed that I never saw that I've heard you know had people that have said you know I definitely saw that or I definitely heard you know there's definitely things going around about this so mm-hmm. what did you see anything that was like that or did you sense that while you were there well there were definitely a lot of things that were ridiculously sexually inappropriate. So after briefly staying with that home, thanks to Calvary in Missouri, we eventually wound up at Pace, Pace, Florida location. Right. And that was when it became New Beginnings Girls Academy. Eventually when, when the state of Florida put pressure on New Beginnings and they started seeing uh, abuse allegations come in in the media and, and all this stuff, they closed down and went back to Missouri. And then Marvelous Grace Girls Academy opened up on that property. So in the course of all of that time, like I was with the McNamara's for, you know, four and a half years, kind of like another, another person who was interviewed mentioned, I'd sort of gained a lot of trust just by being there for so long and like knowing the rules, knowing the ropes. Um, So over that time, yeah, I did hear, I did hear a lot of things about, there was like a one girl who was sent home after trying to pass one of the junior staff members a note that said that Bill McNamara had tried to engage in like, you know, tried to basically proposition her to do sexual favors for him for an easier time there. Hmm. And there was also like, when I say like there were other super sexually inappropriate things, there was a lot of during Bill McNamara's like preaching sessions, which it was just pretty much screaming in your face. Um, He would say a lot of stuff about people's sexual orientation, like very graphic stuff though. Like yeah, that's um, a comment I've heard from everybody from new beginnings has been, that, yeah. has been the um, preaching was very sexualized, which is, you know, that's not rare to IFB preaching for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You go from Texas, you go to Missouri and then you end up in Florida, which is where the majority of the stories seem to come out of that I've talked to so far. So now he's pretty much back to running things completely his way. You know, he's mm-hmm. not merged with someone. He's not worried about the politics of all of that. What yeah. was, what was that core of your stay that, that time in Florida day to day? Like, did that, did that just look like another ramped up version of it? Cause it seems like you just kind of progressed from like bad to worse to, you know, to worse. Yeah. But. I think that, um, I think that when, it was the Rebecca home for girls back in Texas. There were a lot of other, like a lot of other staff members doing involved in different ministries on that property and stuff. So when we were eventually in Florida at new beginnings, it was just pretty much Bill McNamara running the show. There were a couple people on paper, like uh, evangelist Jimmy Clark and then Wiley Cameron, who had was Lester Roloff's successor, basically Mm. who were board members or, you know, in the ministry, but we barely ever saw them. So it was pretty much Bill McNamara and his wife running the show there. And yeah, just it, that's correct. It did just get worse and worse. There was a lot of physical abuse. And I guess what I mean is they basically, we weren't allowed to speak. So that's understood. Like we couldn't talk to each other. We couldn't even non-verbally communicate with each other. And they had this sort of like 
sort of like a ranking system where when you're brand new, you're just lower rung, or if you're on redshirt or discipline, which they changed the name to discipline, you know, like you're a very low ranking person in that situation. But after you sort of kind of have been there for a while and you start minding your P's and Q's, like he would, Bill McNamara would like force us to hold other, to restrain each other and like participate in the abuse against each other. So we didn't want to do that, but we also didn't want to be the girl face down in a, on a right. floor in the back of a church for five hours or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting kind of tactic because, you know, I know I, I had a guest on from one of these homes and, you know, someone, you know, someone basically commented and was saying, you know, Oh, I remember they were just as bad as anyone. They were one of the, they started working with them and, you know, but mm-hmm. even her response was, you know, what choice do you have when you're, you know, like it's, it's a weird yeah. thing that keeps everybody at each other's throats while not looking at the person who's causing all of it, who's provoking that kind of thing. But I, I, I wasn't aware about them actually, you know, forcing people to participate in the actual punishment side. I had, oh, heard, yeah. I mean, I knew it was implied in a lot of the conversation, but to, I didn't know that it was an actual like process. So it, did that essentially go with the whole ranking thing too? Like the better students mm-hmm. ended up on that side. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely a situation like that with me. So like, I didn't, as I've mentioned, didn't really have like a super strong family structure in the first place. And actually after my first year in the home, I actually got to go home for a couple of months to my sister's place. I'm sorry. I used her name. I can, I can take it out. So I went back to my sister's place in North Idaho and I was there for a couple of months, but she didn't want to put me in public school. She didn't want to undo all of this progress, you know, that that had happened at New Beginnings. And so one day she got a phone call from Bill McNamara asking her if if she might be willing to send me back to do work around the property and they wouldn't have to pay any tuition. And like, I could just, you know, pay my own way working for my high school education, basically. And so yeah, like, as far as kind of using us as tools against each other, when I was sent back to New Beginnings, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to start all over. I didn't want to be like, back on red shirt, like dealing with all those punishments and stuff. So, you know, when they first brought up sending me back, I was just like, please don't send me back, you know, but it became pretty clear pretty quick that my sister and brother-in-law didn't want me at home. So, you know, I I basically deduced that if I didn't, you know, go along with going back there as a junior staff member, then I was going to go back as a new girl either way. So, right. Uh, So, so what was, what was the response of your brother-in-law and your sister when you came back originally and told them what happened there. Did they have any concern about it? Was it, was it, you know, like what was the reaction to hearing the stories coming from, from you? So when I, when I first went back, it was when I was 16 after that first year there, when I first went back to my family, I honestly didn't, I didn't tell them, you know, I didn't, I didn't tell them everything that had happened. I was just, after being labeled as this like troubled teen, you know, grappling with like my sexuality and, you know, literally um, being forced to adopt this entirely new identity and belief system and stuff, I didn't want to risk like them doing anything worse, you know? Right. So, so yeah, I didn't really say anything about the abuse when I first got sent uh, back to my family. But when I did eventually get out at, at 19, that was when I, you know, I came, told them everything. And, you know, they just, that IFB home church that had converted my sister and stuff, they didn't care. You know, they didn't no. believe me at all. So, I mean, having, so having left, so you spent a total of how many years then? About four, Over four. Five, yeah, yeah, four. Mm-hmm. So coming out, you know, sharing your story, you know, you've you've obviously been a part of really like speaking out against these homes. Can you mm-hmm. can you talk about that process and how you went from 
you know, hey, you know, this happened to me, like, there's basically two reactions, like you can put your head down and just go about your life, you know, or at least try to go about your life in some normal fashion, or you can do that and become, you know, an advocate for other survivors. And it's, you've definitely leaned toward being an advocate for other people. You've been involved with other articles and you've, mm-hmm. you've spoken out for people. You've been active in a lot of these survivor networks and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, what was it that motivated you into that action? Was there, a, was there a period where you thought about just like not addressing it and like pretending it never happened? Or did you kind of go instantly into that mode of, you know, I need to start sharing my story? It was pretty much instantly. Like when I did eventually get out of the home at at 19, I really I had been completely cut off for so long from my the rest of my family that I didn't think I had anywhere to go except for back to my sister, my IFP sister. So she was super controlling and just wanted me to get married to a Baptist guy and so after a couple of months of kind of trying to reason with her about that, I left like in the middle of the night with the clothes on my back and I think because of, you know, having to start from just complete and total scratch, like I had a lot of, I had a lot of like, I don't explain it, I suppose I felt really compelled to help other people who had been in these circumstances. So I called, I called DCF, uh, Child Protective Services and stuff right away. It, I think that that was kind of like the spark that started them moving out of Florida and into Missouri. Got it. And then after that, I linked up with other survivors of New Beginnings and other homes on social media. I found out that some of these other survivors had sur- survivor support groups. So mm. me and a handful of girls, like just girls at the time, because there was only like the Girls Academy and I didn't know anybody else yet. But like me and a handful of former students started a support group and there were like just a couple people in there. And then it, you know, it grew up to like, 250 people over time. And I've been been working on this myself for about a decade, like pretty much been interviewed by like every, every major news source. <laughs> like not all of them have used the info because like we talked about before, it's a big topic for a journalist to tackle. But yeah, it basically just, it gave me like a sense of purpose. Um, And there are a lot of female artists and stuff. I'm an artist and um, a lot of female artists over time that have started organizations for survivors of abuse and things like that. And I was really inspired by them. And Hmm. I, I also felt kind of like a, almost like a calling to do this because I, I knew that I had so much energy and that I was articulate, you know, and my education prior to the home was pretty solid. So it's like, I knew that there were a lot of former students that could not speak out about it on the level right? that, you know, I was blessed to be able to, I guess. Right. What would you say has been the most helpful? I mean, obviously the network's building healthy community, but what's been the most helpful thing for you? I mean, obviously it's not a, you know, flip a switch and the effects are all gone, but what's been most helpful for you on your day-to-day, like kind of, you know, I don't know what the right word is, recovering from being in this, like from, you know, untraining, like all the negative things that you were told about yourself or about other people, like what's been most helpful for you on that journey? Has it been, you know, you mentioned you're an artist, has it been like getting it out that way? Has it been through mainly the community and conversation? Like what's been the big key there to kind of moving to the next, you know, stage of life? I think it's been pretty pretty multifaceted, I guess. I was in therapy for a long time. There are so many communities just online that you can yeah. that you can link up with. Like there's a religious trauma institute there at the time of all of us kind of first being inspired to do some activism work about all this. There was, were several groups for survivors of institutional abuse, peer support groups for mental health issues, things like that. So I just, I really personally just linked up with, with those people as much as I could. I did do conventional, you know, therapy for many years and, right. but yeah, like also art, art has been one of the biggest things that has, has helped me and just, right. just trying to help other people because if there's no other reason, you know, that all of this happened, you know, like some deep special reason that these terrible things happened to us. Like, you know, at least the one thing that we can uh, bring out of it that's positive is that we helped other people make no. it. I'm just curious, is there somewhere we can see your art or is there somewhere that you 
somewhere that, um, that, that works out or I'm actually kind of work- <laughs> yeah I'm kind of working on some I guess rebranding and like setting up a like some new Instagram accounts and stuff like that but I will let you know about that I guess cool. yeah yeah definitely do I mean I'm from a creative background too and that's been a huge way that I've I mean it's different like I do like photography and videography and things like that but like that's mm-hmm. always been a huge constant so Whenever someone says that, my I, I perk up, but I'm <laughs> always curious where yeah, where yeah. people can see and support that kind of stuff. So, but but yeah, I mean, I, I these are always hard conversations to start and com- hard conversations to end. But I appreciate you, you know, sharing your story. I, I mean, I I see you on Facebook all the time, you know, helping people, sharing your perspectives, you know, encouraging other people who've been through these kind of situations. And you know, I. I can't thank you enough for doing that from, you know, obviously the side that I'm doing stuff and, you know, just as someone who's seen firsthand a lot of stuff, I'm not, not even close to the scale that you have, but has seen a lot of negative influence within the IFB. And I really appreciate the work you've been doing and the, and the voice that you've had because uh, you've been going at this even longer than I have. You've been, you know, you've been really going out there and sharing what's happening. And I, I really appreciate that. No, I appreciate, I appreciate everything that you're doing. And I guess, I guess I would just say to other people who have survived all of this, don't stop sharing about it, you know, like until they have, basically they have standards for housing children on par with the standards that they have for like housing animals and things like that. Please keep speaking out and sharing. Right. Yeah, that's huge. We were talking right before we started recording and I was sharing with you, like there's, you know, I have cases, I probably have 311 cases that are, you know, half of those are still waiting to get uploaded to the site. I've got, you know, I've got tons of my messages. I've probably got 400 some odd cases that I still need to add that are solid. You know, I can add them, but I've got a ton of cases where I know the person's name. I know where they live. I know their, you know, what they were accused of. I know what the, you know, there's three or four people that can all confirm it but nobody wants to attach their name to it. And I understand that, but also, you know, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky conversation. It's a tricky thing to think about. And I understand, you know, I don't want someone to get involved in something where they, you know, they're not mentally ready to, to talk about it or things like that. But if you've been wondering how you can help and you are ready to share your story, that could be the key to some of these guys actually getting some form of punishment, some form of, you know, and so, so if somebody did want to speak out and they do want to take the steps to become an advocate and speak out against these homes, since you're a survivor yourself, you've kind of been through this road. Like, what would you recommend to someone who is sitting there thinking like, oh, I want to share my story. I want to help other people, but I don't know where to even get started. What would you recommend to them? So there are so many avenues where you can share share your story these days. You can share it with obviously just your friends and family to let them know that these things go on so that they can, you know, they can tell others too. I mean, that ch- especially in churches that they can be, have more of a, have more of a watchful eye on these situations because the, I, I do think that the biggest issue with especially abuse in the IFB is that everybody t- kind of tends to assume that everybody's, you know, upstanding citizens and it's not really how it is. A lot of, right. a lot of Characters running things are, you know, former convicts and whatever who just are now saved yeah. and, you know. Right. But you can, what we did was we, we started a Facebook group, linked up with other Facebook groups, and then established pages on other social media. But what we did to really get attention from the media was we started filling out reviews. So you eventually have like 80 people commenting on this company's, you know, review page on Google or wherever you're going to sooner or later get somebody's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the very least, parents who go to look up what type of program to send their kids to, they're going to see, you know, 80 people saying, you know, this, is, this is abusive. <laughs> yeah. So, but even if there's not, you don't have 80 friends to do this with, like, the the attention that we got that it really eventually kind of drove new beginnings into just kind of obscurity like there aren't teenagers there right now knowledge we just like we filled out complaints boards better business bureau stuff about them all the time we gave 
kind of little testimonials on forums because those show up in the Google in Google search results. You can create your own blog for free and you can go to protests. There's, you know, definitely all types of protests that you can can join up with these days about human rights. And then other than that, I would just say to reach out to us because like the crazy amount of media contacts that we have at this point, it would just kind of blow most people away. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to put you guys in contact with, with those people. Awesome. Awesome. What, what is the best way for people to contact you or contact those you've worked with in the past? Probably the best way to contact me would be to email me at, I guess the best email would be bcampbell.nbga, New Beginnings Girls Academy, at gmail.com. Okay. And you can also join, pretty much anybody's welcome to join the New Beginnings Survivor Support Group if you, if you want help kind of being pointed in the right direction. Right. Um, as, as a survivor of any program. Got it. Yeah, it can be, it seems like there's people in there from any, any troubled, you know, teen home or, you know, troubled boys home, troubled girls home. There's a good variety in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's people like me who, you know, aren't from one of these homes, but I'm interested in exposing what's going on. So, and it's been a really helpful resource and a great way to connect with all of you. So definitely, definitely second that. So. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Definitely uh, get me a link to your, your artwork so we can uh, okay. promote a little bit of that in, in here as well. That way people can connect. But I really appreciate you coming on. I know it's going to be a huge help to, to people watching. Yeah, thank you for having me and for everything you're doing. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.